defense attorney, Neil Rockheim. Hey, this is Neil Rockheind of Killer Cross-Examination, your cross-examination criminal justice podcast. Um, I, I want to I put something in your head I want you to think about. I want you to think of Proverbs 1817. Proverbs 1817. If you have to, I want you to write that. I want you to think about it. I want you to think about Proverbs 1817. There's so many versions of it, but the version that really stands out to me, the biblical version, Proverbs 1817 is the first to state his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Let me say that again. The first to state his case seems right until another comes and examines him. The first to testify, kind of applying it to what we do in court. The first to give an opening statement, the first to to explain what happened on direct examination. Seems right until another, like me, comes and examines him. The prosecution and its case seems right in their opening statement until we give our opening statement. The prosecution's witness who testifies on direct examination that our client sitting in the chair did it or violated the rules or broke the law or whatever it is seems right until someone like me gets up and examines him. Proverbs 18.17, I want you to have that in your mind. You should have that written on the top of your page. You should be thinking that when you're talking to juries. You should be thinking that. When you're listening to a a prosecutor give an opening statement or you're listening to a witness testify on direct exam, you should be thinking, yeah, I know this. He sounds right, but just wait until we get a chance to cross-examine him. There's a reason for that. It's it's one of the most (coughs) important It's such an important concept that when the first person gets up to tell their story, they seem right until someone like me or a lawyer or someone else gets the chance to break it down and tear it apart and to turn it inside out and to show you what's really there. To show you that what this person gave you is this ball was really nothing. I mentioned Proverbs 18.17 because it just came to life in a case of ours last week. We saved someone's life. Yeah, we saved his life. He's a guy who's been down on his luck. We were hired by his boss to represent him. Um, Well, hired by him, but his boss helped find us. He, um, he's had issues over time. He's had problems. He's had his fair share of run-ins with the law. He had uh, some issues. He's, um, his, he's got two children. 
He, his children have, uh, are in foster care. The mother of his children has lost her parental rights. He's fighting tooth and nail, hanging by a thread to hold on to his parental rights. Guy works, goes to treatment, goes to AA and NA, does more tests for alcohol and drugs than anybody that I know. Then than he does more tests than for alcohol and drugs than like Olympic athletes during the Olympics. And this guy um, was accused of, of, of engaging in misconduct at a treatment facility and causing himself to get kicked out. He was being blamed for, for being such a bad actor that they kicked him out. He was actually being violated in his probation. His, his, his probation was being terminated or they were asking to violate his probation, saying that he had caused problems or he had engaged in such bad behavior at this facility that they kicked him out. And then they were saying that that's his fault. 1817, Proverbs 1817. Why did, did this case bring that to life this week? Because what I witnessed was a witness called by the prosecutor who was the director of a facility who took the stand and tried to say that our client engaged in bad acts and bad conduct, then that was the reason why he was terminated and kicked out of this treatment facility. That's what this man testified to on direct examination. And it seemed right until I got up to examine him. So let me set the stage for a bit. Let me set the table. Sometimes judges can order people who are sentenced to jail or even to probation as a condition of probation to have to enter into and satisfactorily complete a treatment program. And that and when they're in that treatment program, they have to they, they've got to start and they've got to finish. And so they've got to abide by the, the rules of the facility. And if the facility kicks them out. For drug use or fighting or committing a crime or violating the facility rules, then not only is he kicked out of treatment and not get the benefit of treatment, but he also is accused of probation violation, which means that whatever the original potential sentence was, that's back on the table. So if he got probation and was able to avoid jail or prison, or he got jail and was able to avoid prison, or he got so all of a sudden, a probation violation, it's all back. It's all on the table. Everything is available. Any punishment is possible. On top of for this guy, he was looking at prison. The judge had already said, you're going to prison if you violate. On top of that, he, was, he knew that he, would, what, what, he was fighting for his kids and what fighting chance he had to, to hang on to his parental rights, th that you, that would be terminated. That would be over. He would lose his parental rights of his kids if he went to prison. He would lose his job, lose his apartment. He would basically lose everything that was important to him. His freedom. He would lose his children. He would lose his career. He would lose his home. Everything. Because he knew what fate awaited him behind that probation violation door. It was prison. And he knew what prison would do to his life. 
And so he went to this facility. So I want to set the table some more. He went to this facility, reported, was there. And then about 30 days into it, he was terminated. He was kicked out. And the facility director wrote a letter the next day saying the reason why we had to kick him out was because he violated the facility rules. He left the facility without permission to go work. Like he was regularly leaving and without permission. He was using his cell phone in violation of facility rules. And we had to, because of his multiple violations and the multiple chances we gave him to get his act together, when he finally couldn't, we had to kick him out. This letter, this allegation, this letter from this director of this or this representative of this facility, this letter was like a, 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 a I don't want to call it a warm, but it was essentially the equivalent of writing the, the, the slip that would send our client to prison, cause him to lose his children. And it was nonsense. It was just an effort at CYA. Cover your ass by the facility. Why? How did we get there? How did we get to the point where a facility wrote a letter to the court saying that my client was terminated from this treatment center, came up with some reasons why our client's probation violation, our client's probation was being violated. He was being accused of probation violation. He was being brought to trial on a probation violation and at a probation violation hearing. And the person that wrote the letter was coming to court and was in court raising his right hand, swearing to all the bad behavior that he wrote in this letter and was now saying was the basis for our client's probation being terminated. How did we get to that point? Well, he certainly didn't reveal any of that on direct examination. No, on direct examination, he did his darndest from my perspective. It appeared to me to tell the story about how our client was just a, you know, he got there and what the facility rules are and this place runs like he just painted this amazing picture of this facility. Like it was just the it was just the the pinnacle of of treatment and um, counseling with didactic and group. And he was using all the terms and we have group sessions and didactic and we've got monitors. I mean, he was painting the picture that this was like the Betty Ford clinic. This was the like white glove, top shelf type of facility. And he painted the picture with, as the prosecutor led him through the questioning, he was painting the picture that there are rules and the facility rules are, are there and everybody who comes there has to sign on to the rules and agree to them. And the rules are you can't 
leave and you can't leave to go to work within the first 45 days that you're there. Um, and that's standard. And the rules would be told to every, every, every resident. And of course, our client was a resident and you can't, um, uh, you can't have your cell phone. And any one of these things is a violation of rules. And a person is typically, even if we try to be really decent about it, we might give people once, twice, we might give them three, four, five second chances, so to speak. But eventually, you know, when someone's just incorrigible, we have to terminate them. And he painted this picture that in this amazing, incredible, efficient, well-run facility, which was just focused on treatment, counseling, and drug rehabilitation, that uh, at which all the rules are well laid out, that our client was just such a, a, such a troublemaker that, and they gave him so many chances, so many second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances to get his to comply, that finally he was just too much, and they decided, you have to go. You're kicked out. That was the picture he painted. And here's what really bothered me about that picture. One, it wasn't true. And two, that when you take the stand and you testify to something like that, there are consequences. The consequences, for apart from the fact that what the truth is, but the consequences for the accused when you take the stand on direct examination and you try to tell that story. You try to testify that the consequences are that our client could, could lose everything. But when this guy took the stand and told the story, man, he seemed right. Proverbs 18, 17, he seemed right. He was the first one telling his story. He told it on direct examination. The prosecutor was walking him through it, and he sure did seem right. Until... I cross-examined And by the time I was done cross-examining him, all of the paint, all of that veneer had been stripped clean. All of the effort to make him sound knowledgeable was gone. All of the effort on his part to make the, to make the rules seem like they were just this facility was so well run and so efficient. And they were, it was just such a, it was so a well-oiled machine was gone. A couple of examples. Tried to say that everybody that comes in there is told the rules. They're given a book. They're given a sheet. And they, they have them sign, the, they explain it all and have them check and have them affirm and sign and say they agree to the rules. Sounds very compelling. Sounds like our client, and the implication was is that our client too was, had sat down with somebody and had been advised of the rules of the facility and agreed to all of them. Turns out that he wasn't present for any such meeting between anybody at that facility and our client. The witness doesn't know specifically who, if anyone, sat down with our client and had that conversation with him. He isn't aware of and hasn't seen any paperwork with our client's signature on it, saying that he signed to the, onto these rules. And he doesn't have a file related to our client's residency there or our client agreeing to these terms. And other than him just saying that this is the way they do things, 
He can't say that anybody actually sat down with our client and went through these rules. By the time I finished that chapter of cross-examination, the, the, the idea that this was such a, a well-run facility where these policies and procedures are applied in every case and thus they should be applied to our client's case was gone. But why even go through that exercise if you don't know? Why would anybody ask this witness and why would this witness say that these are the policies and procedures unless they're trying to imply that they were that our client was advised of them and that he agreed to them, but he didn't know. Why? I'm going to get to the why in a minute. And they want to make the, he wanted to say that they have rules about how, when our client, when, when residents can go to work and that the rules are that in the first 45 days that they're there, nobody works. They want to get them in the treatment program and they want to get them into the, the modality of treatment and into group sessions and into individual therapy and to watching uh, and, and to counseling sessions and to AA and NA. And they want them to be so ingrained in that for the first 45 days. Therefore, they don't allow work. And I happened to question him about that. Of course, and I questioned him and I pointed out that he wasn't present for any conversations that my client had with his therapist. He doesn't, wasn't present for, he never actually really engaged with our client at all. He only had minimal contact maybe twice with our client. He doesn't, isn't aware of whether the therapist that was working with our client gave him permission to go to work. Whether the therapist took part in a phone call with our client and his boss saying that he could go to work at he wasn't aware that our client had been communicating with his probation officer all along about working. But he wanted to create the appearance that somehow our client in this near correctional type setting was leaving every day, signing himself out to go to work and signing himself back in. In other words, walking out the front door and walking back in. And it was just unbeknownst to anybody. Gone for the entire day. Guy's gone from 8 in the morning until 4.30 for about two and a half weeks of his stay until they until the, this guy decided to put a stop to it. And he wants to act like for those two and a half weeks that our client was somehow leaving this lockdown facility for two and a half weeks, gone in the day, entirely gone at work. And somehow our client did that without permission. It didn't pass the smell test. And when I pointed out that he when he admitted that he hadn't taken part in conversations between our client and his therapist, wasn't aware of whether our client and therapist discussed working. When I pointed out that he doesn't know whether our, he certainly can't say that the therapist didn't give our client permission. He tried to scoff and, you know, act like that was of course that, that he doubts that, but he had to concede that he didn't know. And of course, the idea that somehow our client was for two and a half weeks while at this facility, going to work all day and, and being gone, like, you know, like a head count, like the idea that there's just some guy who's not there in the middle of the day who's supposed to be there. They're accounting for him for food and beverage and treatment, you know, name call and 
and and a roll call that somehow he's just gone and nobody knew. They just put up with it for two and a half weeks. What makes more sense, that or the fact that his therapist and someone at the facility gave him permission to go to work? Thus, his absence wasn't questioned. Of course, the latter. And cross-examination painted that picture. And then it got even worse about the cell phone. He tried to make it out like our client had some violated the facility rules by having his personal cell phone. Only he didn't see it, and he didn't see whether our client had used his cell phone, and he didn't see what cell phone it was. And he concedes that cell phones can have internet connections. And some people actually have old cell phones, just have pictures and movies of their kids and their loved ones on it. And that that was the cell phone that our client had. Of course, he goes like, well, I doubt it. And I'm like, well, you don't know. And he goes, well, I don't know. And then I point out the dates that someone had made notes of, of, um, of these this, these cell phone violations, these violation of facility rules, just someone said, well, he has a cell phone, except they were like within a week of his getting, getting to the facility and maybe two weeks before he had been terminated. So they weren't the reason why he was kicked out. And when I discussed with him that, Again, he didn't know what communications had taken place between our client and his therapist about him having a cell phone there. He had to concede that that was true. But again, on direct, he tried to make it seem like it's just a black and white rule. Can't have a cell phone. He goes, call the cell phone. That's the reason to kick him out. And as we went through cross-examination, he revealed that he didn't really have that knowledge. He didn't know anything, and he wasn't kicked out. And of course, he can't say whether someone had given him permission to have a cell phone, one that actually communicates, and B, to have this other specific cell phone that just has the pictures of his kids and, um, and movies of his kids. And then about this work issue. Um, turns out that this guy ends up, what he didn't tell the court was that when at one point our client had come back from work, and he had testified that he confronted our, well, he didn't tell him that he had confronted our client and said, where were you? Our client said, well, I was at work. Well, you're not allowed to work. So that this is the guy that two and a half weeks into his stay, he's the one that terminated our client's ability to go to work. Why is that important? Because it was our client's position all along that his therapist had told him that he had permission. So he left with permission and that the witness retracted it two and a half weeks in. What the witness didn't share with the court, which I brought out on cross-examination, was that the therapist, when our client came back from work that day and this witness had retracted or would said, you can't leave for work anymore, that on that day, this guy switched a therapist that had given our client permission to somebody else. Was, he changed our client's therapist. He just changed who his therapist was. Yet he hadn't told the court that. Why would he, on the day that our client comes back from work, on the day that this guy, this director of sorts, the witness, the one who seemed right, the, the moment that he retracts, and tells our client, you're no longer allowed to go to work. You are not allowed to go to work. Why would he be changing our client's counselor? 
on that very same date. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder, is it just coincidence? Or is it that the counselor had given our client permission? What makes more sense? The guy on direct seemed right. Seemed like he had was telling the truth until on cross-examination, we brought out what the real story was and what made more sense. That's that his therapist had told him it was okay. And then this guy, this director, he disagreed with that. And he stopped our client from going to work. And he changed our client's counselor. In other words, he was punishing our client and the counselor because the counselor given our client permission. And then the last, which was blew my mind, this all sort of started to go down right around the time that the pandemic hit. And the facility was in an old house and there were five people in one small room. My client slept about two feet from another, um, um, another roommate. And they shared that room with four other people. So five adult men in this one small room, about two feet away from each other when they're sleeping. And one of the guys got really sick. Coughing, coughing up blood, spitting, fever. They put a garbage can next to the guy's bed. And our client was concerned that he had been exposed to COVID because this guy had all the signs, the symptoms of COVID. And he went to the, called his probation officer and said, I, I think I've been exposed to COVID. And I see my, my children twice a week and I don't want to expose them and I don't want to get sick. And he was told to go to the hospital. So he went to the hospital. He took a picture of himself at the hospital. He's got copies of the records showing he went to the hospital. He got records from the hospital showing that he should be quarantined upon his return from the hospital because he had potentially been exposed. And he returned to the facility and he said, I need to quarantine. Now, one questioned this director he tried to act like, oh, we follow all the CDC rules and the guidelines, and we're always, we follow everything, and we have to follow the applicable rules of the statutes and the regs. He, he gave an answer like that. When the prosecutor asked him, well, I mean, if someone has to quarantine, do you, would you follow the, oh, yes, we follow all of the necessary statutes and rules for facilities and statutes and rules and regulations and the regs. He had some nonsensical cir circular BS answer that didn't specifically address how they would quarantine. Remember, this was back in March of 2020 when we first started this whole issue of, a, we first realized that you had to quarantine and there were directions about how to quarantine and how to isolate yourself. This is a treatment facility where there's limited space. They have a certain number of, of, of residents and limited space and they can't just take one person and put them in a separate room. So our client came back to him. this guy. Well, this guy's answer to the question. Well, you know, we follow all the applicable rules and, you know, the regs and the statutes. 
And it just sounded like such a BS answer. It sounded like, you know, like convincing, like someone just, you know, citing chapter and verse from the, the how to bullshit your way through a question. But to me, as I heard it, I thought, okay, I got I to gotta examine this. Because what our client was saying was that when he came back from the hospital and he told this guy, this witness, who was trying to sink him during this hearing, who had kicked him out and was now trying to back up the, the legitimacy of kicking him out of this facility and potentially causing him to go to prison, this guy was saying, our clients as well, the reason why, well, what happened was I came back from the hospital and I said, the doctors told me to quarantine. And th this guy said, we don't have the ability to do that. And I said, well, you have to. I have to quarantine. That's what I was told by the doctors. And then this guy said, you know what? You're maybe, you know what I think is better for you? Just leave. Leave the facility. And it was because they didn't know how to quarantine or isolate a, a resident that he was kicked out. That was what our client said. And the facts is the fact that this witness gave this bullshit answer, this bullshittery about, you know, well, I mean, regs and the rules, just tell there was something not right about it. So I pushed him on, I examined him. And it just take the bullshit, I examined him. And the examination revealed that our client shared this room with it's a limited space and it's a house and has this number of residents and they our client shared this space with these other residents, but they didn't have the facilities to quarantine patients. And it was new in the pandemic. And he was forced to concede that they didn't have a place to put somebody who was sick or who needed to be quarantined. And it was so early in it that there weren't like guidelines for what to do. And then I pointed out that our client wasn't violated for going to work because he still was allowed to stay in the facility. He wasn't violated for using his phone or using his phone a second time. That he was actually kicked out of the facility on the same day that he went to the hospital, returned, and came back to quarantine. And I put to him that, is he trying to tell us that it was just coincidence that on that day, the day that he returned from the hospital to quarantine in a facility that didn't have the ability or the, or the, the resources to quarantine and isolate patients. Is it just coincidence that that happened to be the day that the facility decided that he was going to have to pay for these past violations? And, we, and when we argued the case, the judge took a few moments, brought us back in. And then he acknowledged that there was much more to the story based on his findings of fact than what this witness had testified to. He believed that our client wasn't violated or wasn't kicked out of the facility for going to work. That he believed that the witness, that our client had been given permission to go to work by this therapist. And perhaps this one therapist had was acting outside of his authority, but that's not our client's fault. And that that's the reason the judge found why the, the therapist had been changed, why our client's therapist was changed from the guy who gave him permission to somebody else. And that he wasn't kicked out for cell phone violations because he wasn't.
And the judge said that he does believe and did believe that the reason why our client was kicked out was because when he came back, he said that he had to quarantine and the facility didn't know how to do that. The judge made those factual findings and found that our client didn't violate his probation, that he didn't cause the termination of his residency and inpatient treatment at this facility. He was not guilty of a probation violation. So he, he wasn't going to prison, not losing his kids, not losing his job, he's not losing his home. But, but Proverbs 18, 17 came to life because when this witness told his story on direct examination, he sure seemed right. He sure seemed like a guy that was running this facility and there was this facility was running in top-notch form and that our client had been told of the rules and our client gave our client multiple chances and they just, they kicked him out when he just became too much of a rule breaker. Sure seemed right until we broke it down. Put aside that we had established, put aside, remember I told you that why would this guy take the stand and do this knowing <laughs> the potential consequence to our client? Could it be that they didn't have the ability to quarantine then, that they didn't know how to handle it? Maybe it had to do with funding. Maybe it had to do with the fact that they only have X number of residents and they get paid. They have X number of residents at that facility. They get state dollars or state money for that many residents at this facility. And that they don't have, a, a, a at the time, didn't have a way. They were to send people home who are exposed, they would then lose out on, on revenue, unable to fulfill the state's contract, or unable to, to, to earn their money. Maybe it's that this guy, is it possible this guy who was like a director or a head of a department there, that he would bear some responsibility for these decisions and he wanted to come to court and to make it seem like he was just, that he was running this well-oiled machine and in fact it wasn't? But all of that was borne out on cross-examination. Proverbs 18, 17. The first to state his case, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Listen, take advantage of cross-examination. Take advantage of the ability to listen to a witness's story, even if that witness seems like he's believable or seems like he's telling the truth or is compelling, don't just, you know, take your notepad and throw your pen down and close your book and think, you know, yourself, we've lost. Don't do that. Listen to the story that the witness is telling. And I don't care how plausible or righteous it seems, break it down. We broke it down. We broke it down in this case, and we took a, a guy who seemed right and revealed that our client was in the right and that this guy was just covering his ass. This witness was just covering his ass in this hearing. That can only be done through cross-examination. Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The first to state his case seems right until someone stands 
and examines him. This is Neil Rockhind. Um, thank you for another edition of Killer Cross-Examination. You can find our podcast anywhere where podcasts are, are available. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts. You can do a, a Google search for Killer Cross-Examination. You can Google search my name, Neil Rockhine. You can go to YouTube and look up our YouTube channel and find Neil Rockhine there. And find all of our podcasts and other cross-examination videos, real cross-examinations that were done in court. Some that have been watched over a million times. But we want this to have, we appreciate you listening, we want this to have value to you. We want this podcast to help your lawyers more effectively represent you or their clients in court. And we want you to get more justice in your own lives, more justice in the legal system. And killer cross-examination is the way to do it. Killer, killer. Killer, killer cross-examination. A podcast by your host, the nationally renowned criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockheim.